you. I hope you have your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 6 tonight. We're moving right along in our Bible study um, called Undeniable, Undeniable, because John is writing a book where he uh, is, is telling the world, years and years after these events took place, he's writing to the world um, about the man that he came to know as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus who he declared was the Son of God, the Word of God made flesh, the Lamb of God provided for all the sins of the world, um, the, the, the favor that was long sought after and, 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 and coveted in the Old Testament, the favor of God made free for everyone to obtain the new platform, the new wine. Jesus is, Jesus is, is, is portrayed in John's Gospel. John writes that it undeniably is true that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the whole world. And we've spent a couple of weeks in chapter 5. Um, some of these chapters of John get pretty dense. There's a lot of dialogue, a lot of just lectures that Jesus is giving, a lot of sermons that Jesus is giving. And John is giving us, to the best of his memory and according to inspiration, what he remembers hearing Jesus um, say at these very important events. We, we talked about how John is um, really ordering the narrative around these signs. There are seven signs in the book of John that John uses to kind of prop up this, uh, this, this, this message that Jesus is the Savior, He is the Messiah, He is the source and the way to eternal life. Um, so tonight is going to be another sign, the fourth sign. We started out with Cana at Galilee, um, and uh, we have made our way um, through the nobleman's son being healed. We've talked about the man at the pool of Bethesda being healed, and tonight we're going to talk about the very famous story, um, the feeding of the 5,000, one of the only um, uh, stories or the only events that all four Gospels tell us about. So it must be a pretty important event. It must have a pretty powerful message for us to hear. And John's side of that story is pretty unique and actually is a lot more extensive than the other three. So we're going to have a good time tonight. Um, when I was growing up, though, um, I, uh, I was spoiled. Maybe you were spoiled. Maybe you could tell I was spoiled. Um, if you know me, you probably, that's probably not a surprise. Um, but, but one thing I remember as a kid, um, I'm not sure what created this or caused this, uh, maybe I was just born this selfish and this entitled. I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that it was maybe created and then it just kind of got out of control. But as a kid, um, I, I remember, other than just being selfish and just having this desire, this notion to beg, uh, I remember um, when I was a kid, when my mom would go shopping with my sisters or they would go off to a dance competition for a weekend and come back, or um, when my grandparents would go to some, uh, somewhere for vacation, I remember as soon as they would come back, um, as soon as I would see them again after a couple of days or a time of being away, even if it was just a morning where they were gone shopping, I remember as soon as they would come back or as soon as I would see them again, whether parents or grandparents, um, I remember going into my kitchen or going into the living area or going to their house. Um, and again, as a child, and thinking back as a kid, I'm, I'm embarrassed, but I don't think this is unique to me, and I'm pretty sure that all of us had these words come out of our, come out of our mouth at some point when we were kids when we um, were greeting or being greeted by our mom or dad or grandparent or someone that we loved that went somewhere and came back, um, we probably all remember greeting them um, with a very warm welcome that went something like this. Did you bring me something? 
And that makes them feel so great and so loved and so appreciated, right? Did you bring me something? And usually I had a reason to ask this, right? Um, you know, usually um, things had been brought to me, so I kind of caught on after a while, okay? When someone goes to the mall and they're going to come back after a long day, they're going to bring me something, right? Sometimes it's clothes and I'm not really excited about that, but sometimes it's a toy, sometimes it's some sort of collectible, sometimes it's something that I didn't know that I wanted, but as soon as I see it, I am just, it was exactly what I was in need of, right? But, you know, again, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just, maybe I was just entitled, I don't know, but I'm sure when you were a kid, I'm sure uh, with your own kids, with your grandkids, uh, after a trip away, maybe when you went to the beach or the, to the mountains or somewhere that was, you know, a, a place of, of uh, you know, that, that was a great interest, that had a souvenir shop, I'm sure you brought back or you have brought back someone that you love, someone that you care about, kids, grandkids, your spouse, someone, and I'm sure maybe you were greeted with a monster like I was when I was a kid that said, what did you bring me? And of course, after you gave it to them, then they said, well, I'm so glad that you're home. I love you, but I'm really in love with the thing that you gave me more. So, right, they didn't say that, but that's what they meant, right? But we do that when we're kids, right? We're just honest, and we don't hold back or don't hide what, um, what we learn to conceal as adults. But, you know, early on in our walks with God, um, when we're immature Christians, and not, none of y'all have ever been immature Christians, but they're out there, right? Uh, when we're not mature in our walk with Christ, and sometimes this takes forever, sometimes we never mature in our walk with Christ, and, but when we're early on in our walk with God, this is how we often relate to God. And for many Christians, this is how we always relate to God. And you know, if you want to make a lot of money in our world today, if you want to have a big, big following, all you got to do is write a book, and all you got to do is tell people or make videos telling people how to get God to give them a lot of money or how to get God to give them what, exactly what they want, right? If you say that, if you just say, hey, here's the magic words, here's the things you need to do, here's the things you need to say, if you say that sort of stuff, people will buy and say, you know, follow and, and sign up for whatever you want them to because that just appeals to us, right, as people. But even as followers of God, there's something in us that often turns to God and thinks, okay, God, I'm really just here for what you can give me. And, and, and maybe there's a verse that makes us think that's okay, Maybe there's a verse that makes us think that is what God is, that's what God wants from us, and, and maybe you're thinking, well, that's nothing wrong with that, and, and, and maybe you're wondering, is there going to be some sort of part of this message where that isn't okay, or we're talking about that's not okay, and, and we'll get there. Um, but, but I, I want to say this as we foreshadow what the theme of this text is going to be. If that is you, and if that has ever been you, and you've come away from that, you, you, you probably can say amen to this, but regardless of if you're relating to God or somebody else, it's impossible to have an authentic, intimate relationship with someone from whom you're always trying to get something. And when you're a kid and it's your parent or grandparent, you know, it's okay, right? But you learn this when you get older, don't you? It's impossible to have an authentic, genuine, intimate relationship with somebody from whom you're always trying to get something. Now, sometimes marriages are built on this sort of scenario, and it doesn't last. Sometimes relationships, friendships are wired by, or connected by this sort of scenario, and they don't last. But why do we think that we can relate to God this way, and somehow that's going to lead to a healthy, long-term place? Because you're always engaging with them with an agenda. And isn't it true, whenever you're trying to get something, don't you remember as a kid, when you were trying to get something from someone, from your parent, your grandparent, you had this kind of way of negotiating, this way of navigating the conversation, the way of trying to exploit and withdraw something from them. You kind of knew what you could say to nag and get out of it what you wanted, right? And you thought you were being smart, but they just gave in after a while, to be honest. But you always were coming into the conversation with an agenda, always trying to rope them in and trying to do 
what you think you could do to get what you wanted. Sometimes we await for God's presence with this question, and sometimes we come to church and we're thinking, God, what do you have for me? Maybe we open the Bible every day and we think, God, what are you going to give me today? Maybe we think if we don't get something from God, God hasn't kept his part of the deal. The amazing thing about Christianity, though, is that John tells us that in this book that God so loved the world that he gave the whole world a single gift at one single time, at one single event. That God so loved the world that He gave us something once and for all that would provide everything we could ever need. The idea that God showed up and did something for us that has the potential to transform our hearts and our lives, has the potential to bring peace and contentment like none other. And before we get into John's text, I want to show you what I believe is the goal for every Christian. If we would just let God speak to us, and the text tonight is going to make this so clear If we would just receive the true gift that God has given us in Christ, the single gift of eternal life that transcends any other thing that we could ever lay our hands on or eyes on, God would bring us to a place where we would have the absolute most joy and peace and rest and contentment. And maybe those aren't the things you think you need the most. But at the end of your life, those are the things that you're going to wish you had the most. Philippians chapter 4, Paul at the end of his life is writing about the things that he has learned to value the most. He is strapped to the back of a Roman soldier on death row, wondering if he'll ever see daylight again. Paul writes about the things that have kept him sane, the things that have kept him secure, the things that have kept him grounded in these years where he was locked up, unable to do what he was called to do, but put in jail because he was doing that so faithfully. Listen to these words that, that Paul writes at the end of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That means we should have joy and that we can have joy in any and all circumstances. He goes on. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So what does he say in there? That there is rest to be found in even the most anxious of circumstances. So Paul's telling us that we can have joy, we can have rest. He goes on. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. So not only can you have joy and rest, you can have peace. And then he says at the end of that passage, a very famous few verses, Not that I'm speaking in respect of want or in being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul says, hey guys, I have learned the secret. And people are thinking, okay, give me the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now we think of, you know, guy on the football field with eye black, right? I can do all things like I can score this touchdown. Paul's in jail when he writes that. Paul's saying, I can even go through this trial because of the strength and the contentment God has given me. Now, I know some people might would think, more in the prosperity line of thought, they would think, well, that's just consolation prizes. But I promise you, joy and rest and peace and contentment are not consolation prizes, as in they're not just things you tell people when things are going bad for them and you you know it's not going to get better. These are not consolation prizes. These should be the destinations we all prize as Christians. And if you ever get a hold of eternal life in Christ and you ever realize just what you've been given, these will be all that you need. 
Now, this goes against what draws so many in churches and ch- so many to churches in 2019. It goes against what many churches and movements are built on in 2019, and that's not going to go away, and that's only going to become more and more of a thing. But, what, but that's a shame because people aren't becoming more at peace. Even these movements that promise people all the stuff they could ever want and people that you know, flock to uh, this and that because they think it's going to get them into a higher social stratosphere or get them the more, more of the material things that they want. Even people that chase after all these things in life, people aren't getting more at peace. People aren't becoming more content. People aren't getting any closer to God. Christians are so plastic in 2019. We're, we've, we've mastered the art of pretending to be perfect online. But when nobody's looking, when nobody's watching, when the camera isn't pointed to us, we're hurting inside. For some of us, we don't even pretend that things are okay. And the highlight reels that others put in front of us, it just deflates us and discourages us because we can't even pretend. We can't even put on an act. But whether we have it all or are chasing it all, we all, we are still missing what matters most of all. What Jesus promises we can all have. Now we miss this sometimes for the same reason that some of the people that followed Jesus literally and physically on earth did. John writes to us that about how Jesus performed many signs and drawed many, many eyes and many, many followers because of those signs and those miracles. But John writes at the end of the gospel that he didn't just inform us about what Jesus did so that we might can experience similar things. He wrote us to tell us who Jesus was so that we might know who he still is. John ends his gospel by saying, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have something. But have what? By believing, you may have, what is it that Jesus promises me? And this perks the eyes and ears up of anyone that is listening. Because Jesus promising us something, Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior, the most powerful person in the world, when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to give you something, we think, what do I, what do we get, what do I get out of following Jesus? Because if I'm going to get something, hey, I'd like to make a list of things I think I need, and hey, according to what John tells us Jesus could do, I guess I should be expecting a lot of things out of following Jesus. Do I get anything at all? Should I even want anything at all? Is it wrong or does it speak ill of me to expect something when he walks through the door running into the kitchen saying, did you bring me something? Is that wrong of me? This comes front and center in tonight's episode of Undeniable. And it begins in John 6 verses 1 and 2. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, Then a great multitude, a great crowd, followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. So why did they follow him? Because he performed miracles. And why did they go wherever he went? Because they might get the next miracle. They might get to see the next sign, and the next sign might benefit them. Who knows what they may get to see next? Who knows what they may may get to experience next? And they were all waiting with bating breath every single time. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. And John tells us something that is very important for the mood and the scene that, that develops. The Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Now the reason why this is important is because Passover reminded the Jews of the miracle of Moses and the miracle of deliverance, but it also reminded the Jews of something else. 
Passover was an annual reminder that Israel was always in need of the next Moses. That Moses had a time and place, but Moses did not live forever. And what Moses did for the Jews in Egypt needed to be repeated for the Jews under the Roman Empire. The the Jews always were looking for the next Moses. They had Joshua, they had David, they had Elijah, they had Judas Maccabeus during the intertestament period. But they needed the next Moses. They needed the next strong man to come in and get rid of Rome, get rid of the oppression, and bring them peace on earth and goodwill forever. They needed the kingdom to be rebuilt. So they were waiting, and Passover reminded them all too well they needed another miracle. Verse 5, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming toward him. They wanted another sign. They weren't there just to hear the sermon. They were there to get the miracle. They were always chasing after this. And being Passover season, they wanted him to be more than just a teacher. They didn't see the point of the signs, they were, what they were pointing to. They always saw today's trouble and today's solution. They saw today's struggle and today's provision. And maybe that's why you follow Jesus. That's why a lot of people follow Jesus, just because you're looking for what he might provide next. What can you quote back to him to get him in a corner where he has to do X, Y, and Z? If you do this, he'll do that, because somebody told you so, right? The Bible says if we do this, God must do that. So, Jesus, I'm here because you owe me Something. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Philip, you're from around here. Do you know the good restaurants in town? Where can we get food enough for all these people? And Philip's like, are you kidding? Like, they can't. You don't, we have no money. They have no money. We can't provide food for all these people. And Philip says, what? where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Jesus, we got a lot of problems. No money. No place in town, a lot of people. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew what they wanted, so he was going to give them what they wanted. Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Philip starts, you know, he's he's got a mathematics mind. He starts adding up the money. He's like, God, we we have no food to buy even enough for one of these families, let alone all of these families. And again, Jesus is just teasing out what he's about to do. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Again, these guys are, you know, they're really putting their heads together. And one of them takes, they just walk up to this kid. I don't know if the kid, you know, said, Hey, Jesus, have my food. Or maybe, maybe Andrew just walked up to him and said, Hey, listen, Jesus needs this worse than you do. He just takes the food from him, right? And hey, we took this kid's lunch and told him you needed it more than he did. And we could split it up amongst ourselves or, or, or Jesus. You know, you could do something miraculous. You could do what you've done before. Remember the water and wine? Remember the man at the pool? Remember the young guy that had died? Remember all his miracles? Jesus, you know, we've been thinking, there's a lot of people here. They all think you're the next Moses. They're ready to go to war for you. If you performed a miracle to this crowd... They would be ready to do whatever you said. And Jesus knew that. Again, he was testing them. He was setting the stage for something so spectacular. So Jesus leans into this in verse 10. He said, make them all sit down. There was much grass in the place. And so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now this is very important because John is teasing out something that's going to come out later in this story. 
5,000 men, which would have meant there would have been probably equally as many women, equally as many kids, maybe even double as many kids. So we're talking 15 to 20,000 people on this hillside. This was a massive, massive crowd. But the reason why 5,000 men is important is because 5,000 men is the size of an average Roman legion. And again, these people are ready to go to war for Jesus. 5,000 men. Here we go, all these people gathered in the crowd span for hundreds of yards up and down these hills. He says, guys, sit everybody down. Let's all bow our heads and pray over this lunch and tell everyone to sit down and everybody's going to have something to eat. And everybody's looking around thinking, Jesus, we can't communicate to everyone as far as everyone is spread out. But what are you doing? I mean, have you said the magic words yet? I mean, we've got one basket of bread and one basket of fish. Where is the miracle going to come from? But Jesus goes forward. In verse 11, he took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So as they continued to pass the basket, the basket never got empty, right? It wasn't like he just opened the can and it just flooded the building, right? Or flooded the, the, the hills. He kept passing the basket. And everybody just kept taking out. And they think, well, they thought, well, can I take two? Go ahead and take two. Can I take three? Can I have two loaves, two pieces of bread? Can I have four? And they just kept taking and taking and taking. And everybody's thinking, oh my goodness, the money is rolling in, right? We have never seen this much food. And then when they were filled, he said to his disciples, go and gather the fragments that, they, that remain so that nothing is lost. And he did this to make a point and to get their eyes as wide as they could be. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Again, 15 to 20,000 hungry, hungry people. And they have leftovers. They took as much as they wanted. And here is this crowd of people who are so vulnerable. They're so poor. And they're so in need. And they're thinking, leftovers? We never have leftovers! And their eyes get bigger and bigger and bigger. And their bellies are getting bigger. Why? They're thinking, wow, what is God up to? And they're thinking, who is this man. Verse 14. Then those men, when they had eaten, seen the sign that Jesus did, truly the prophet who is to come into the world, this is the guy we've been waiting for. And it clicks, and their eyes are wide, and they're, they're convinced this is the one they've been waiting for. For as much as they had their eyes on Jesus, they start thinking about themselves. For a brief minute they thought, this is the Messiah. But it quickly, it quickly became about them. Verse 15. Therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him their King, see how quickly it happened? You're going to feed us? Wow, we're so thankful, Jesus. Oh, oh, oh. Leftovers. Jesus. You know what we could do? We have 5,000 men here. That's as much as a Roman legion. We can all start marching to Jerusalem. By the time we get through Galilee, by the time we get to Judea, we'll be 10,000 strong, 20,000 strong. We'll take Jerusalem back and Rome will be shaking in its boots because we'll say to them, Caesar, look out because we've got the guy who has all the power and we are going to be set for life. Jesus, we want you to be our king. And what does he do? He flees 
to the mountains by himself. He could have said, all right, boys, let's storm the gates. But he doesn't. Because he was going to storm the gates later on, but not to take over the city, but to die in the city. Jesus retreats to the mountain to pray. He rushes to the disciples into the boat and says, I'll meet y'all on the other side. Now we're going to skip the little inter-period here because the point of this story goes on as they cross the other side. When Jesus rejoins them, the crowds made their way larger than before, and little did they know Jesus was about to thin the herd in a big way. They're about to go from 20,000 to 12. Let me say that again. They're about to go from 15 to 20,000 to 12 people. Because he's going to call them out. He's going to call us out. He's going to call me out. Thousands would walk away from Jesus that day, citing a reason that many in our world have used as a reason of their own. And maybe you've heard this reason from people before when they've walked away from church and walked away from faith. I walked away from faith because I wasn't getting anything out of it. I walked away from religion because there was not enough there for me. I went and I went and I went and I went and I attended and I prayed and I even gave a little bit. I was always there. Well, sometimes I was there, but I was most of the time I was there. I went and I, you know what? I wasn't getting anything out of that. And I tried and I prayed. I tried to sing. I even dressed like the people. I wanted to get something out of it, but there was just nothing on the table. And there were people there that were getting nothing, but they seemed at peace about it. But I'm not going to waste my time on Sunday and not get anything out of it. I'm not going to follow some crazy religion and not get anything back. Who would do that? In the moment, Jesus is going to teach us a lesson. As long as this is about getting something out of it, we've yet to truly understand it. We're still rushing into the kitchen or rushing, rushing the door to the door saying, what did you bring me? What did you get me? When do I get it? Verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no, one, no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, so they start piecing together, hey, where did Jesus go? However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they had ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side, they said, as if it was a coincidence, Rabbi, when did you get here? Oh, 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 we weren't looking for you, but it's just a coincidence that we ran into you, Jesus. I can't believe it. Even though there's extensive detail as to how they were looking for him and they couldn't find him, and they just stumble across the sea, and oh, they just stumble into Jesus, and they act like, oh, we didn't really expect to meet you here, Jesus. But now that we are here, and now that you're here... Maybe we can have lunch again. I mean, you know, Jesus, if you're not busy. Verse 26, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. He says, guys, I know why you're here. Y'all think the goal, y'all think the end game is just about what you can get? I mean, he says, don't waste... Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. He says, don't waste your life. Don't think only about. Don't focus all of your energy on stuff, on what your belly tells you is the only important stuff. 
Don't shrink God down to the size of a genie. Do you not realize you're part of something much bigger than taking land and getting food and having stuff? You're staring the Messiah in the eyes and all you care about is lunch? You're making this all about something you might enjoy for 10, 20, 30 years tops. Do you think that's why God sent his Messiah to earth to die for you? They said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Well, what do we need to do? Well, you know, okay, Jesus, we've took enough from you, so maybe we should do something to you so then you'll do more to us. What's the magic amount of time or the magic amount of money? What's the magic words? What do we got to do to get out of you what we want? I mean, okay, you're some sort of slot machine. We've got to put the number of coins in. We've got to put enough quarters in. We've got to put enough time in. You know, you gave us a free meal yesterday, so to get the next free meal, we've got to do something to get the next house, to get the next, you know, the uh, next status. I mean, hey, if we want to take the land back, then to, what do we got to do to get what we're looking for? And again, they're playing this game, aren't they? They're negotiating. They're navigating. They're trying to get out of Jesus something. Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in Him who sent Him. He said, guys, you're missing the point. This is about trusting in God, resting from this world in its constant cycle, and receiving true life. Why did God send a Savior? To do for us what we could not do for ourselves which is beyond the reach of anybody, enter the kingdom of God. Jesus did not come to make anybody rich or make anybody popular or powerful. There are plenty of popular, powerful, rich people in the world, and they didn't need Jesus to get that way. And that is not why Jesus came to make us any such way. Jesus came to do a universal work. To save people from sin's universal mission, which is to rob us of life. Listen, this is for those seasons of life that are bound to come where there isn't going to be enough money. There isn't going to be enough time. There isn't going to be a way to control what they do or what they did. There's no amount of material things that will mask the deficit in every other category. I hope everything always worked perfect for everyone, but the reality of our fallen world, the truth of this book, and what God says the way things work, that's not going to be the case. But the hope of the gospel is that there is life that endures, there is life that overcomes, there is joy and rest and contentment, and there is peace. But our drift is always swing the focus back toward material, temporary things. And we'll say things like, you know what, I know that peace and joy and contentment are nice, but how about you give me this one thing that I really, really, really need, and that will make everything better. And then, yeah, I'll need peace and joy and contentment, but I really need this first. If I could just get better or get more or find them or fix this, God, I'd be set and I wouldn't ask for anything else. There's something in us that always responds to the countless calls for us to find Christ and find peace and joy and contentment. With, But I need this more. Yeah, I know I need that stuff and I know that's what the Bible says I need, but I need this more. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? I mean, are they listening? Well, you know, Jesus, if you just do one more miracle, we think we'll be on board. I mean, if you can just give us that one thing that we're really in need of, because we really, 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 really need it. Do you know, Jesus, what we could do with this? I mean, just add one more zero to the check and my life would be so different. 
you imagine? Can you believe this? Yeah, but what can you do? What else can you do? And then it's, oh, hey, we just thought of this, Jesus. You know, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. That bread you just gave us. Can we have some more? You know, hey, that bread that you gave us, it was kind of like what Moses gave the people. And hey, we could use some more bread. We could use some more money. We could use some more stuff. Can you, can you believe this? Have you ever been in the presence of somebody that was really important, like beyond you? Someone you admired and respected and revered? How'd you behave? Did you ask him for some money? Did you just walk up and say, hey, I know I've never met you before, but I would really appreciate if you could give me some money? No. Right? I mean, even if they should give you some money, you wouldn't ask them that. I mean, oh, hey, I know I've never met you, Mr. President or Mr. Businessman, but, you know, if you could let me borrow one of your cars, that'd be great. And I might not ever return it, but you wouldn't miss it, would you? You wouldn't do that, would you? I mean, if you met someone that you admired, someone that was so powerful and so, you know, so successful, you would ask questions, right? You would marvel and just soak it up, soak in the presence and be appreciative of the opportunity, right? You wouldn't start saying, hey, can I borrow something? I mean, these men and women were standing in the presence of God in a body, and all they could think about was their bellies. Are we any different? They go back and forth to Jesus, and Jesus repeatedly reminds them that he was offering them a higher grade of food. He says to them, I am the bread of life, guys, that what y'all are laboring for is going to pass away, but I'm going to give you a sustenance that is not ever going to be rivaled. I'm not just here to give you houses you didn't build and wells you didn't dig and vineyards you didn't plant. That stuff is in the Old Testament, but I'm not here just to make Israel great again. And he goes on to say, listen, guys, or they go on to respond to him, listen, Jesus, you know, our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness, and we would love for you to give us that same stuff. And Jesus says, listen, that stuff that they got, they died. It didn't last them. The houses they lived in, the money they had, the stuff they ate, it all passed away with them. He said, I'm here to give you something that's spiritual, something that is eternal. And look down at verse 52, the Jews take offense to that. And Jesus tells them that what he offers them is better than what he, what, what he offers spiritually is better than what they could take materially. And they confuse the saying and they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because Jesus said, y'all need me more than you need stuff. Y'all need me more than you need that stuff that you're asking me for. And they're thinking, well, how can anything be better than what we've got? How can anything be better than these things that we dream for and ask for? How can anything be more desirable than dollar signs and sheet metal and brick and mortar, vacations in paradise? How can anything spiritual rival flesh and blood? And Jesus goes on and tells them, he said, listen, if y'all follow me, this is going to translate to your physical life, but it's not in the way you think it's going to. In verse number 60, Many of his followers, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Who can accept it? In verse number 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Many means most. And how many are left in verse 67? Twelve. How many were there back in verse number, I don't know, in verse number 10? There were 5,000 men. And in verse 67, there's 12 men. 
Now, maybe for them and their circumstances, they had an excuse, but you know what? We don't. You don't. I don't. We're on the other side of the resurrection where Jesus has proven He was the light of the world. He's the resurrection and the life. For them, it was hard to see past the miracles. For us, we have every reason to believe that He is more than just a miracle man. He's more than just a food truck. He's the Messiah who gives us something better. So i got to ask you, and maybe this isn't really to y'all, but this is to a lot of Christians. And there are days where this is to me, I can tell you that. Are we just in this for the food? For what we can get out of it? If so, we have not come to grips with whom we are dealing with, not recognized with whom we are dealing. We stand in the presence of the light of the world. We stand in the presence of the God of the universe. We've been invited to be a part of something extraordinary. And you know what is so important? 5,000 to 12. 5,000 consumers, 12 followers. The consumers of Jesus didn't change the world, his followers did. Because they realized it was no, no small and significant thing that they had been invited to. See, Jesus gives the rest who stayed, the 12, he gives them an out. He says, Do y'all want to leave too? This is verse 67. Do you want to go away? And Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's nothing better, Jesus. We've tasted purpose and we can't settle for less. They saw what Jesus had invited them to and they couldn't go back. And his original followers, it clicked for them. When he died, he rose. He filled them with his spirit. They saw how important it was for the world to know what they knew. And they lived their life to make it known. And Peter, James, Paul, the disciples gave up their lives, not afraid of what they might lose because of all they had gained from him. So where do we land with this, church? I know this is heavy and this is a lot for Sunday night, but I think we need to hear it. Are we just in this for the food? Let me ask you this. Let me, let me say this. What if American Christians, for just one week, turn from consuming to following? We are so fortunate, yet we still ask for more, don't we? What if we would simply quit asking for anything and start praying for opportunities to give, serve, and love? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't ask for something. But what if we channeled as much energy into praying for opportunities to love and forgive and show compassion and serve and submit instead of sizing up? What if just the Christians in America would do what the first century followers of Jesus did? People would still be talking about us 2,000 years from now. That's what would happen. Because the world would be so different. We're walking around in ruby slippers with everything we could ever want, yet we still want more. Who do you believe Jesus is? He's just a magic rabbi with a food truck. He gave us more. He gave them more than they could ever imagine. In the end, He gave them Himself. Again, it's impossible for us to have an authentic, intimate relationship with anybody from whom we're always trying to get something. So we need to start negotiating. I'll follow you if. We need to start saying yes no matter what. 
because Jesus is enough for me. Instruct me and direct me. I'm here. I've surrendered my body as a living sacrifice. Here's all that I am because you've wholly given your love. I'm fully given my life as loving, as authentic, as devoted as you want me to be. I'm here. I'm in. Jesus, whatever you want. You know, he was always nagged about how much will God give us if we ask, can we receive? And Jesus said, of course, of course, God will provide if you just follow me. We take that and analyze it and we talk about how much money and care and houses and and stuff we can get. But Jesus taught us the key to getting exactly what we need. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not mine. I mean, are you brave enough? Are you devoted enough? Are you committed enough to pray that kind of prayer? God, whatever it takes, not for protection and blessings and provisions and hedges and keep this and take care of that. What if we prayed those secondarily? But what if we prayed first and foremost, God, whatever it takes, I'm willing, I'm ready, I'm in. Whatever it costs. Because you've given me so much. This is what mature, faithful, devoted Christians should look like in our world. So John, remember, John said, I've written all this to you that by believing you may have life in His name. When life is enough, when Jesus is enough, we can truly begin to live. But until eternal life is enough, Jesus is just a food truck with a menu that never fully satisfies. Come on, this isn't about our bellies. We can't spend forever in negotiation with the God of creation. We need to surrender. Remember and surrender to who He is. Let's lay aside consumerism and become followers. Because followers change the world and followers are remembered. Followers have eternal life. And followers show other people that they can have it too. Rex, you would come play just a verse or two for us to, to surround us with an invitation. Maybe you're here tonight and you would confess that you are, you're consuming and all you do is consume and consume and consume and you're just in it for what God can give you. And that's okay. God loves you. He wants to give you a lot of stuff, but there's more than that, isn't there? There's more than that. It's more than just what our bellies want. It's what our heart needs. And what our hearts need is eternal life. The peace, the joy, the rest, and contentment that this world does not offer. And even if we got all the world ever could offer, we would not be where we wanted and need to be. Can you believe it was 5,000 and it became 12? 5,000 people ready to go to war for Jesus. But just 12 that would accept life in Jesus. If only Americans, if only American Christians for just a week would say, Father, I've got enough. You've given me so much. I want you to work in my life that I might give somebody else what I know and what I've taken for granted. Lord, give me the opportunity to love and to give and to serve. Give me the opportunity to show the world what you've given me, so full and so free. If only we would be that brave and that bold and that courageous, what a difference our world might receive.
Father, we're thankful for this house tonight. Thank you for your people. Lord, thank you for this reminder, Lord, that helps us fight that drift. And maybe there's somebody here tonight that always compares themselves to somebody else. They're always looking over their shoulder and they're thinking, I don't have what they have and I need more of that and maybe one day I'll be caught up to them. And that robs them of the joy and peace and contentment and rest that Jesus says, I'll give you and that's all you need. Father, maybe we've been tempted to become consumers and we've quit following. Forgive us, Lord, but help us to get back on track and help us to put the main thing and the most important thing first because that's what brings us and quenches our most and our greatest thirst. God, we love you. We're thankful for this invitation and thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to follow the Savior of the world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.